From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we talk to super producer Bob Ezrin. He's worked on epic albums with Pink Floyd, Alice Cooper, and so many more. Alice and I have been brothers since 1970. That's a relationship that means a tremendous amount to me. It goes beyond the records. Plus, we hear the song that got up-and-coming pop R&B singer Amber Mark hooked on Sonics. And I pop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll hear from Amber Mark about the song that got her hooked on Sonics, and Greg will have a pick for the Desert Island Jukebox. But first, we are revisiting our conversation with legendary album producer Bob Ezrin. Welcome to my nightmare. I think you're gonna like it. with Bob in 2011, and he was quick with stories about the recording sessions of some of the most epic rock albums of his generation. It's one of our favorites, so we thought we'd share it again. Absolutely, Greg. You know, visionary producer Bob Ezrin's been the force behind some of the most critically acclaimed and commercially successful albums ever. Epics by Pink Floyd, Peter Gabriel, and Kiss, but his relationship with Alice Cooper was at the very start, and it's been one of the most fruitful of Ezrin's career. The two collaborated on nine classic albums, including 1975's Welcome to My Nightmare, which we just heard. I think it's typical of Ezrin's work. Um, He doesn't make small albums. He builds these giant skyscrapers and massive bridges, concept albums, giant constructions of sound, heavy lifting, big records. I think that's his forte, that's his trademark. In our conversation, we took Ezrin through some of those well-known albums, and we started off by asking him how he fell into music in the first place. I was kind of born into it. People say, you know, when did you become a producer? And and my mom says that I was organizing things and uh, taking charge from the time I was one. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, uh, you know, the family was all musical. My grandfather was a song and dance man. My dad played bass. My mom played piano. I really didn't have any choice. I was in the music business before I knew there was a music business. Now, you were playing in bands at an early age. What made you gravitate towards the production side as opposed to the performance side of it? Um, I think that's probably most to do with my uncle's setup down in his basement because he not only had a great collection of stuff, he had tape machines. And uh, once a kid discovers a tape machine... (laughs) all hell breaks loose and he would let me stay down there for hours and just mess about so I'd have microphones and tape machines I would record I'd pretend to be a radio announcer (laughs) and uh, would create my own shows I just loved recording loved it plus my siblings and I were doing a lot of television and radio from the time we were little which was actually completely accidental my brothers happened to be on a tour of the CBC and they got plucked out of the crowd because they looked like they were like miniature versions of one of the guys that was a star on CBC TV who had a Saturday night show. The producers said, oh my God, they look they look like miniature billies. Do they sing? And my dad said, uh, five, six, seven, eight. And the boys started, you know, because we were a singing, we were like a singing and dancing family. So they got hired on the spot and then they, then they started asking if there were any more at home. And the next thing you know, we were all working all the time. So your first gig was producing Alice Cooper's 1971 breakthrough, Love It to Death. 
it sort of launched both of your careers. In 1970, you were hired by Jack Richardson. He was a big-name producer at the time. He'd worked with the Guess Who. And you're supposed to run around for like 100 bucks a week and, and find new talent for him, I guess, right? Well, in fact, I was hired to be like his advance man. I was hired to do pre-production for him. I've heard you tell this story. Max is Kansas City. You walk in, and everybody looks like a zombie. There's all this white face paint and black nail polish, black lipstick. You wind up producing that major hit, Love It to Death, in 71. Yeah. It, it was an amazing time, really. The business was exploding, but it was still pretty square. I mean, people were still in T-shirts and jeans, and uh, all you know, every rock band kind of looked the same. And then along comes this group of lunatics of indeterminate sex wearing ballerina costumes and uh, mirrored having mirrored instruments and playing this kind of weird-ass art rock. Nobody knew what it was. Frankly, Jack and, and my bosses, they were all in their 40s and, and really straight guys. They not only couldn't understand it, they just downright didn't like it, and they were kind of scared of it. So they sent me out to get rid of Alice Cooper. They sent me to New York <laughs> and said... Get rid of Alice Cooper. That's your job. So I went to Max's Kansas City. First of all, the whole place was filled with people with spider eyes and spandex, jet black hair and jet black fingernails and black lipstick. I had never seen anything like it. It was the beginning, of, I guess, of the goth movement. But everybody in the joint knew every word to every song of these unreleased tunes. Then this is before Internet. It was an amazing thing. And the band was stunning. There was something scary, sexually exciting, you know, um, powerful, pounding rhythmically and all that stuff. There was something magical about what they were doing. So I went upstairs and I said, we'll do it. <laughs> we will produce you and, because mm. we think you can make hit records. And they said, that's great. We think you can too. And then I walked out of Max's Kansas City and I was standing out in the street in New York at three o'clock in the morning thinking, I am so fired. Yeah. <laughs> what kills me about that is that you uh, were steeped in this musical background. You'd obviously studied music, classically trained in a lot of ways, and yet you had this sort of broader cultural vision. You sort of the theater of it. You kind of, it seemed to me like you had a sense of almost how big it could be even though at the time nobody thought Alice Cooper was this amazing band. He'd already put out a couple of records that nobody cared about. Frank Zappa had worked with him, I guess, and, and, and nothing happened. You obviously had a wider vision for this for this. Sound. Well, to, listen, you know, you, if you were in that room, you would have had the same feeling. This wasn't rock music. This was like the beginning of a cultural movement. There's no T-shirts, there's no jeans, there's lights, there's sets. They run around, they got theater, they got antics. You know, the audience looks like them. They know all the words. The songs could be amazing, blah, blah, blah. blah. And Jack said, enough already. He said, if you like it so much, you do it. <laughs> so did you feel vindicated when the hits like I'm 18 and, and School's Out started coming? Absolutely. Of course, right? <laughs> of course. Are you kidding? I was vindicated on a lot of levels because Warner Brothers was really, first of all, they thought that this was Jack Richardson producing this thing. And when they heard that there was this unknown kid that had zero track record, they freaked out. They would only let us do four songs. Jack said, I'll be there too. We're co-producing. I guarantee this will be good. And out of those first four songs came I'm 18.
English company got a copy of this thing, and it got out in England and started to take off, like, instantly, which sort of forced the American company's hand. And then, and then of course, God bless Rosalie Tremblay, who was the program director at CKLW in Windsor, Ontario, a very powerful station that beamed into Detroit. And, yeah. and that whole region went nuts. What you did there, too, I think it seemed like you, you had a role in shaping the music in a great way. Again, going back to those first couple of records, the band sounded nothing like they did once you got a hold of them. What exactly did you do with the sound? It was stripped down, it was tougher, it was leaner. Was that your influence? Well, yes, I think so. I think everybody was willing to do this. They didn't know how. As Alice puts it, it was a band of lead players. Everybody was lead. We had lead vocals, lead drums, lead bass, <laughs> you know, two lead guitar players. So everybody was playing everything all the time. And I think maybe my, uh, my classical training helped me to orchestrate I like to tell people that my first heavy metal artist was Tchaikovsky. When you listen to The Prelude to Romeo and Juliet, when you listen to that, there's stuff in there that's so powerful, it's so big. Any heavy rock band could play it and it would just blow people away. There's always these elements. There's a melodic element, there's a counter melody, and there's a rhythmical element. And that was what I tried to bring into the Alice Cooper songs, while leaving enough space for Alice, obviously, the big thing is this is the story, you know, it's the the vocal melody, but it's the lyrics too. You've got to understand what he's saying because that's the the essence of the song. And in doing that, things simplified, they got tighter, and they got magically more powerful suddenly. Sound Opinions, and our guest is producer Bob Ezrin. Now, Bob, you did nine albums with Alice Cooper in the 70s and 80s. Then, after a long time, you worked with him again in 2011 on Welcome to My Nightmare, to the numeral. It's a sequel. Tell me how that one came about. It came about, they, they were, um, uh, Shep and Alice were asked to license five tracks to Guitar Hero, I think. Shep is like the ultimate gentleman uh, manager. There aren't very many left. And he called me to say, you know, we're going to re-record these songs that you recorded originally. I want just want you to know that we're doing that. And oh, by the way, we'll still pay you your producer's points, but you don't have to do anything. First of all, I was totally taken aback by that because a number of bands I've worked with in the past have gone on to re-record and not paid anybody because mm-hmm. yeah. that's just the way it is, right? So I was just like, wow, so impressed with that. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not letting anybody else touch those songs. <laughs> if they're going to re-record them, I'm going to re-record them. Mm-hmm. So we went in and re-recorded five songs very quickly, 
you know, on a Guitar Hero budget, but whatever it was. And then Alice shows up in Nashville to sing the vocals. That's where I'm living, in Nashville, and I have a little studio there. So Alice shows up in Nashville to sing the vocals, walks in the front door and says, so anyway, and we were back to where we were <laughs> 20 years ago, you it know, the last stopped. time that we were in the studio. It, it, like, like nothing had changed and like we hadn't dropped a beat. It was so good. It was so instantly, comfortable is not a good word, but energizing and inspiring and exciting that after we finished doing that, we just looked at each other and went, you know, we got to keep going. This is too good. I am made of you. You felt kind of proprietary that, that this was your art. You know, obviously it's mainly Cooper's, right? His name's on it. But you had a stake in this in this music too. Have you felt that way about all the records you've produced? Um, no, uh, n- nobody can feel that way about everything that they do. There are some sure. things I'd rather forget, actually. <laughs> but um, but there are you know the 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 key ones and the ones that are mostly the ones that are already pretty popular. Those ones meant a lot to me. And there's a few that people didn't really give enough attention to, in my opinion, that also mean a lot to me. Alice and I have been brothers since 1970, so. That's a relationship that means a tremendous amount to me. It goes beyond the records. This is a man I love. I love Cheryl. I love the family. We, we've stuck together through all these years. When I got inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, there was no question as to who I wanted to have present the award. And Alice, when he got asked, he said, I'm not letting anybody else do it. Pick up our conversation with Bob Ezrin after a quick break in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That's one of my all-time favorite songs, Greg. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner's Greg Cott. We're revisiting our 2011 conversation with producer Bob Ezrin. He's had a 40-year history in the music business, working on some classic epic albums, Pink Floyd, Kiss, Alice Cooper, and Peter Gabriel, who we just heard. I asked Bob what he remembered about producing Gabriel's self-titled 1977 debut solo album. Uh, the uh, the best story is about the song Modern Love, which has the chorus, uh, Oh, the pain, modern <laughs> love can be a strain, right? And as Peter was singing it, I just was not believing it. It was, you know, it, it was kind of polite and very English. He was very polite in English in those days. And, and uh, so I said to him, we were in a studio that had two big pillars in the middle of the room, and I said, you know, I'm going to give you three more shots at this, and if you don't get it, you're going up the pillar. And, and, <laughs> and, and he, he just looked at me and smiled because he didn't really understand what I was saying. So we did, you know, we tried one, nope, not that, nope. And, and I said, you got one more, you're going up the pillar. He tried it, didn't work. So I turned to Brian Christian, uh, who happened to be 225 pounds of solid muscle from Southside Chicago, mm-hmm. just a tough guy. So I said, Brian put him up the pillar. We went in the room, Brian lifted him in the air, and I had the second engineer gaffer tape him under the armpits to the pillar up in the air about about 10 feet up. And then I said, mic him. <laughs> wow. And I said, roll tape. Now there he was flailing in midair, hanging from his armpits 10 feet in the air, and when he sang, oh, the pain, <laughs> he meant it. <laughs> Gabriel willingly complied with this request, or was it Peter just Gabriel under was the rest? best? But he was he was the best sport and very playful too. That that whole album was filled with pranks and jokes and funny things. And I mean, when we went out to the closing dinner, we did the barbershop quartet from Excuse Me live in the restaurant. We just stood up and sang it, and we got big applause. And I said, "We're here every Thursday night. Please come back. Bring your friend." Excuse me. You're wearing out my There was a great spirit in the making of that whole record. Well, you have worked with some people from the outside anyway who have this reputation as being incredibly dour, and Peter is is one of them. I mean, an intellectual and obviously one of the smartest men you'd ever want to encounter, I would imagine. But you're saying that there's a different side to this guy. That was Oh, a- he's got a fantastic sense of humor. He's, yeah. you know, there was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the original movie, they talked about Mr. Smith being pixelated. That's Peter, you know, not in the sense, not in the monitor sense of the word, but, you know, there's a pixie in there, and there's just a funny, 
very English, so it's very dry, but it's very funny and kind of playful, and uh, there's a sort of playful prankster in there. Speaking of playful pranksters, that just brings to mind immediately Lou Reed. Uh, <laughs> and that's, oh, yeah. uh, that's meant uh, <laughs> Mr. Fun. Extreme yeah. irony. Uh, but uh, oh. beloved album, Berlin, uh, 1973. Every story I've ever heard about that album, Bob, is that it was just this absolute torture fest for everyone involved. What's your story about that record? Um, it was a torture fest. It, it was in t- just incredibly intense. First of all, look at the material. It seems a little pale now after all the stuff we've been exposed to in the, in the last four decades. But uh, for the time, it was pretty raw stuff. But she's not afraid to die All of her friends call her Alaska When she takes speed They laugh and ask her What is in her mind What is in her mind Talking about drug addicts and speed and waking up shaking after being in a, you know in a sort of sp- on a speed binge for five days and stuff like that people weren't talking about that sort of stuff Lou was talking about that sort of stuff and it was you know about spousal abuse and suicide I mean all the kind of zany madcap themes of life and we were in London it was the fall so it was rainy and dark it was back in the days when drugs were good and sex would not kill you so there was a lot of that afoot and and there was some there were some tensions in the room uh, between some of the players, between Lou and less between Lou and me than just between Lou and life. He was going through some stuff at that time in his marriage. And I think that all of that's pretty well documented. Anyway, it was difficult, but it was still thrilling. Mm-hmm. It may have been difficult, but there were moments where everybody just looked at each other in awe when they would play stuff. I mean, much of that record was, was certainly the the rhythm tracks were cut live. Mm. Everybody in the room, you know, wow, what a concept. In- Nobody does incredible that band, but, too. Oh, what a band. And there were, there were sometimes like the jam on the end of O Jim, and you know, it's just stuff coming out of these people that I had never heard played before. They were, you know, making love musically on the ends of some of these songs. about the song Kids. This has got to be the number one thing people wonder about with the recording of Berlin. The character Caroline is having her kids taken away and there's children crying, shouting. There are children crying and yelling for mommy. So uh, at that stage, David was already five and a half and smart beyond his years and Joshua was one and a half. Two things happened. these, These were recorded at separate times. The really mournful, just, oh, my God, you want to just kill yourself, cry, is comes after the following words. Joshua, bed. <laughs> Joshua hated to go to bed. One
one night I brought a Niagara into the house and held the microphone over him and went, Joshua, bed. <laughs> and and I captured that moment forever. Oh, wow. So then the other one, the other bit, which is the pounding on the door and the yelling for mommy, I said to David, look, I'm doing this little little piece. It's about a little boy. I didn't want to tell him that she was you know, having her children taken away. It's not something you want to tell a five-year-old. But I was saying, it's a little boy, and he's trying to get in the house, and his mommy's inside, and she can't hear him. So I want you to pound on the door and yell, Mommy, as loud as you can. So he's pounding on the door, yelling, Mommy, Mommy, and Joshua comes running down. So he gets into the act and goes, Mommy, Mommy, and starts yelling, too, and the two of them pound on the door. So that's it. It's really, really tame, and I'm sorry to dispel the myth yeah. that I tortured them or told them that their the 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 urban myth is that I told them their mom was dead. Yeah, that there were, you, you told them a lie, and then they reacted, and yeah. yeah. In 1973, this was this was harrowing stuff, and I'm quoting now from the Rolling Stone review. Bob, sorry to sorry to bring this up, but this is the Rolling Stone review in 1973. There are certain records that are so patently offensive that one wishes to take some kind of physical vengeance on the artists that perpetrate them. <laughs> I mean, they... <laughs> uh, to say, That's great. So this record was somewhat misunderstood, to say the least, when, when it came out. How did you feel about it when it was done? I thought it was genius. I, I thought the record was absolutely brilliant. You know, at that time, I didn't know a hit single from, uh, you know... I mean, I wasn't chasing hits, which is what we do as an industry right now. We're always just chasing a hit. We don't really care about anything else. What I was chasing was a vision and attempt to create a work of art. Like, we really believed that this thing would go out live. That was the original plan. This was going to be a show. We had a set design and everything, and it would have been an amazing show, by the way, the way we we visualized it. And it became an amazing Mm -hmm. show just a few years ago. Right. But... At that time, you know, this was about putting a, a theatrical piece out. This was the accompanying record. And uh, I thought this thing was going to be very successful because it was great art. As it turns out, over the years, it has been very, very successful. It just wasn't received very well initially. Although, you know, there were other reviews that called it genius. Yeah. And, and um, it's, it's a provocative and controversial record, and actually I'm very proud of that. Well, some people would say from the sublime to the ridiculous, but let me throw another record at you. 1976, Kiss, Destroyer. Yes. What stands out? I love it. It is. I love Destroyer. I loved making that record. I loved working with those guys. Again, it was just a party, and we laughed through the whole making of the record. (laughs) There were a few challenging times. We had some issues with with Ace, and those are also very well documented. But what stands out for me is when we in Studio A, that is Kiss and and the crew, declared war on Grand Funk Railroad in Studio B. (laughs) A favorite of Greg's. Oh, yeah. And what we did was we went out and we bought every cream pie in the neighborhood, and we snuck them into the building through the back door. We all bought cheap uh, sweat gear, when we dressed up like ninjas, we got our cream pies and our <laughs> fire extinguishers, and at the set hour, which was, I believe, midnight, we turned out the lights and hit them. <laughs> it was fantastic. Mm. 
And actually, apparently it cost like $1,000 to clean the studio. on the. We did it on a Saturday, right? And when Eddie Germano, who was the manager of the studio, came in, he was he couldn't believe what he saw. He was beyond mortified. But that was great. That was a really great experience. And that was kind of the, that was the spirit of the thing. There was lots of that, lots of pranks. And after a while, you just have to have a release. So I used to always have crazy little things planned that I would spring on the band, little surprises that they would love and, and would blow <laughs> off steam. And then we'd go in and, and usually immediately following one of those, we'd cut the best take. Let me ask about the sound of Destroyer. I mean, and I mean this in the best possible way. To me, if I had to choose one album that is the sound of a comic book, it's that album. I mean, there's something playful and absurd. You know, the colors are brighter, the noise is louder, and the perfect match of oral presentation and what they were doing on stage. Well, thanks, because that was the idea. And I, I, I like to try to do that with everybody that I work with. It was the perfect cartoon soundtrack because they were the perfect cartoon band. Mm. They made no bones about it. They played comic book heroes. I mean, in a way, I wish Spider-Man on Broadway had done something similar to what we did and not been tried to be so dark it's it's a comic book that was a goal on that record and i think we accomplished it and and then the other side was i was becoming aware of radio i was becoming aware of making hit songs and the fact that this band needed another radio record so i was really trying to make the songs as radio friendly as possible while keeping all that character well you succeeded totally with that song beth which uh, in a lot of ways changed the perception of the band beth i hear you calling but i can't come home right now me and the boys are playing and we just can't find the sound Just a few more hours And I'll be right home to you I think I hear the calling Oh Beth, what can I do? Beth, what can I do? Did they go to that place willingly, you know, a ballad like that, uh, which, no, in opposition to their style of previous years? Let me save you some time. No. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, there was a, a political requirement that Peter get one song on the record. Ace had to have a song or two on the record. And Peter came in with the song called Beck, B-E-C-K. It was jaunty, actually. And I thought, you know, this is exactly why the band's entire audience base is 15 year old pimply boys hmm. because they're just that you know they're just so puerile they're just so boyish so part of the mandate for me on that record was to make them more accessible to women and to make them more apparently vulnerable while not losing the cartoon quality and not losing their you know sex appeal so the idea in Beth was you know make it more romantic 
So I said to Peter, can I take this home and mess around with it a little bit? And he said, oh, that's fine. And I took it back to my apartment, came up with that piano line, slowed it way down, changed the lyrics so that now it was about a failed relationship. And the boys, you know, me and the boys will be playing all night. That's his escape. If I know you're lonely And I hope you'll be alright Cause me and the boys will be playing all night You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're talking with producer Bob Ezrin. Bob, we would be remiss in not bringing up your role in The Wall. And I think we've been talking about some really challenging personalities that you've worked with over the decades. Is there anyone more challenging than Roger Waters? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there are people more challenging than Roger Waters. Because the reality is, you know, he was tough, but he wasn't impossible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Roger's difficult, but he is more difficult on himself. He's harder on himself than he is on anybody. And we actually had that conversation during the making of the wall. I had to take him outside and say, look, you know, you can beat yourself up all you want. I know that's how you get better and that's how you how you achieve what you achieve. But you can't beat everybody else up. It's not fair. He is a difficult, arrogant, single-minded, fairly egocentric guy but who isn't? Hmm. You know, and the difference between Roger and the rest of us is simply that he has the power to be able to exercise it. Most of us are afraid to let it loose because someone will deck us. there were these long, intense, sometimes confrontational recording sessions going on through 1979, as you said. But what about the moments of silliness? What about the fun? Well, the nope buttons. Did you hear about those that, that Roger had buttons made that said N-O-P-E? <laughs> no. Uh, we had gone away for a holiday, and then we'd come back. And everybody had buttons on that said nope. It was like English schoolyard bully stuff. Right. The nope button stood for no points for Ezrin. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. That's oh, what a man. sweetheart. Yeah, really. What a sweetheart. Thanks, Raj. Yeah. Thank you very much. But, you know, people talk about the, the difficult times, but again, there was a tremendous amount of laughter and there was an awful lot of energy and uh, moments of intense inspiration, you know, just like times when we'd be in tears. We'd be listening back to something like that solo and comfortably numb mm. when Dave f- threw that. And by the way, that that's a first take. It was astounding. That is astounding, and uh, Comfortably Numb nearly wasn't on the album, right? I mean, you had to lobby to get that on the record, right? I had to lobby to get Dave stuff on the record, because originally the concept was that this was really a Roger album, and um, he was writing everything. 
he made it very clear that, you know, I could write, but don't expect any points for it. And uh, I mean, it was it was very much it was kind of like this is my piece. I mm-hmm. came up with this concept. It's my piece. And, and I need your help to deal with the other guys, basically. Mm. So I was kind of hired as the go-between. But, I, you know, that's not the role I played. I, I actually ended up properly producing the record. And that required that there be some Dave. Roger's got a lot of intense emotion, but when it comes to the gentle heart mm-hmm. of things, while Roger can write it, he doesn't sing it that well. And Dave does. And then there's when it comes to the lyrical and kind of, you know, bluesier side of things that's dave's thing he writes that very well so it was very important to introduce dave to the process he came in with a song i the first thing i said is i need a song in d because we had this moment and we had to tell this part of the story we actually had a script that i wrote that was based on songs that roger had written and there were a few slugs here and there that said tbw to be written Mm -hmm. one of those being comfortably numb was where well pink realizes that he's you know, he's totally lost it. So I said, I need a song in D, something romantic. Anybody got anything? You know, and Dave picks up a high string guitar and starts to play that chorus with an entirely different lyric, of course. I fell in love with it. And I said to Roger, you know, we got to, you know, let's do this, you know, and can you finish this song? And if, at first he was very resistant to the idea of, of working on Dave's song. Hmm. But, you know, we made it enough of a challenge and he went away. I didn't hear anything about it. Then one day he came in and played me the demo, handed me a lyric sheet that said, there is no pain, you are receding. A distant ship, smoke on the horizon. You're only coming through in waves. Your lips move, but I can't hear what you're saying. When I was a child, I had a fever, and my hands felt just like two balloons. Now I have that feeling once again, this is not me, you would not understand, but I have become comfortably numb and I'm like oh my god god I almost fell on the floor this is genius there is no You've continued to work steadily since those famous days in the 70s with Gilmore, as you said, but also Jay-Z, the Deftones. Looking back at your discography in the past decade, what stands out to you? What are you most proud of? Oh, I hate that. That's like Sophie's <laughs> Choice. You know, I, 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 yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, which one of your kids is best? <laughs> I, you know, I think maybe, I'll tell you what, maybe the high point moment wasn't an album at all, but it was... Producing the segment that reopened the Superdome after Katrina, mm-hmm. which we did for the pregame show for Monday Night Football, 
at the Superdome with Green Day and U2. That 12 minutes was among the most emotional of my life. We were standing in a building where just one year before people had died. There were 70,000 people in the stands and we had U2 and Green Day come out and sing the song, The Saints Are Coming, which then went into September, you know, uh, Green Day's big song, and then segued into It's a Beautiful Day. When we hit It's a Beautiful Day, we had these huge floodlights behind the band that, that hit the audience with millions of, of kilowatts of light, and the whole room went nuts. Everybody was on their feet, Everybody was singing and everybody was in tears. It was the most emotional moment. It was the moment, I think, that New Orleans came back to life. Above the waters of Lake Pontchartrain See the bird with a leaf in her mouth After the flood of colors came out And, of course, that night the Saints just killed the Falcons. was a beautiful We've been talking with producer Bob Ezrin on Sound Opinions. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Now we want to hear from you. Do you remember the first time you heard Beth or 18? Tell us about your memories of these classic Ezrin songs and albums at 888-859-1800. Up next, we hear about how pop and R&B singer Amber Mark got hooked on Sonics. And I've got a pick for the Desert Island jukebox that involves the godfather of the Portland, Oregon DIY scene. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. The book of love is long and boring. No one can lift the damn thing. It's full of charts and facts and figures And instructions for dancing But I, 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 I love it when you read to me And you Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a little bit of Amber Mark singing Lose My Cool, a track off her first EP, 3.33 AM, released earlier this year. Now, that uh, record has uh, gotten a lot of attention. It's about the death of her mother. A lot of critics online have, have lauded it. It has also brought some attention from the mainstream record industry. 
her influences, you know, a little bit of Lauryn Hill, a little bit of Chardet, a little mix of pop and R&B, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most intriguing up-and-coming artists uh, we've heard in the last year. For our series Hooked on Sonics, we asked Amber Mark what song drove her to love music and decide to pursue a music career. My name is Amber Mark, and I am a singer, songwriter, producer, artist, And the song that got me into music was Working Day and Night by Michael Jackson. My mother used to listen to him. When I was a kid, so it was kind of just instilled in my mind, but I immediately fell in love with his music probably around the age of four, five. The reason I really, I think, fell in love with it is because how it starts off, it's got the sounds that he uses. He's actually playing glass bottles and using them as like a rhythmic introduction into the song, which I think is pretty great. I really just enjoyed his voice and how rhythmic it was in the song. He kind of used his voice as like almost as percussion in into the song. So I think I really had this connection with drums and those types of sounds and it just made you want to dance and I just immediately fell in love with Michael Jackson and became a diehard fan. I got the chance at the age of four in Munich to see Michael Jackson. I think it was 97, and it was probably the most amazing experience. So my mom got the tickets. I think it was like for the pit or something like that. They were like, yeah, you can't bring, she's too young to be going into that area. They wouldn't allow us to go in. So I started crying hysterically because I really wanted to see Michael, and I was completely obsessed with him. And my mom kept like trying to explain to me why we couldn't go, but obviously at the age of four, I didn't understand. So she goes to the merch table. She's like, all right, I'm going to get you at least a shirt or something. And my mom is like explaining to me in German that like we can't go, which kind of sounds like yelling. And, <laughs> and uh, like the merch guy is like hearing this whole thing happen. And he's like, and he's about to give her the shirt. And he goes, listen, and he's like, I'm going to give you these two passes. You have to promise me one thing that you're not going to go backstage with these. And so we ended up sitting in like VIP box section. But I just remember like being like there and having the best time of my life and watching Michael and crying hysterically. And I mean, those were tears of joy though. Definitely still gives me that enthusiasm. I think uh, when people ask or even when I think about uh, who the like greatest artists are in my mind, in, in anyone's opinion. To me personally, the greatest artists are people that have kind of stuck with you throughout your whole life, and you never kind of you never get bored of them. And when you listen to the song that you've heard a billion times, it's like listening to it for the first time again. But I definitely think, um, in a production way, I've started listening to his music differently and. And so I, I hear more, I go more into the instrumentation of the song rather than just kind of listening to it and see and like more in an emotional way. I found my way back. That was Amber Mark talking about the song that got her hooked on Sonics.
you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. That music, Greg, means it's time for one of us to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play a song we can't live without. What do you got? I wanted to play a song inspired by um, previous Sound Opinions guest uh, Ted Leo and his band The Pharmacists. They uh, played a show in Chicago recently, and they closed it with a remarkable cover version of a song called It's Okay. Cathartic song, cathartic moment. It had been one of those... Like many weeks in 2017, one of those weeks that just long makes year. you feel yeah. like, what am I doing? What does a citizen mean anymore? What does America mean anymore? And this song just, just sort of captured a moment where everybody in that room was uplifted and left feeling like empowered in some small way. Um, that song was written by a man named Fred Cole in his band Dead Moon. Now, Cole, uh, the reason that uh, Leo was playing the song was that he was a fan of Dead Moon and uh, loved Cole. Cole had just died on November 9th at the age of 69. He was a leader of numerous garage and punk bands in the Pacific Northwest, uh, centered around Portland. Um, His three-piece band, Dead Moon, began in the late 80s, sort of a rootsy garage punk band that he formed with his wife, Tootie. Uh, So Tootie and Fred would share the Hmm. vocals in this group. Uh, They were only 18 when they first met back in the 60s. They've been a married couple almost ever since, over 40 years, uh, a married couple, and and sharing these bands together, particularly Dead Moon. Now, um, a lot of people have never heard of this band, but those who did were rabid fans. Uh, They were a huge influence on the DIY scene in Portland, for example. Uh, Just about everybody who started a band in Portland uh, has referenced Dead Moon in some way as a formative influence. The band basically did everything on its own, booked its own tours, self-managed itself, formed its own label, its own vinyl-only label to release its Mm. recordings. Um, So did things in a way that uh, other bands could model their careers after. Um, The band split up in 2006, though. Uh, Fred and Tootie Cole continued to play in a new band under the name uh, Pierced Arrows. But I think their, their greatest work was done with Dead Moon. Um, you know, Fred Cole uh, would, gave this great quote about what it meant to be uh, a singer in a punk rock band. And he said, you know, they, they always said, you got to sing from your diaphragm, Fred. And I always said, you got to sing from the heart. Mm. That's what matters. And you can hear it in this song. It's Okay is a song of uh, somebody under siege, somebody feeling like um, everything, the world is closing in around them and, and defiantly saying, I'm going to get through this. This is my choice. This is my voice. There may be tomorrow, but somehow I'm going to get through this. Here's Dead Moon with It's Okay on Sound Opinions. It's okay. We all seem better days. It's okay. You don't have to run and hide away. Take a different man 
Okay, Portland Garage Rock Legends. Nice one, Greg Cott. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we present uh, some of our favorite music in the form of a, a, a short mixtape, and we're also going to remember some of the musicians we lost in 2017. Sound Opinions is supported by the Walter and Carla Goldschmidt Foundation and is produced by Brendan Banasak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. My name is Charlie Frick. I'm calling from Passaic, New Jersey. I was a rock critic in the late 60s, early 70s, through the 80s. Uh, great piece you guys are doing on Lester. He was a buddy of mine. I used to slop at the trough down at CB's with him. Uh, a couple other rock writers, David Wally, W-A-L-L-E-Y. He uh, wrote for the East Village Other, where I got my start. Wrote the Frank Zappa biography, the biography of uh, Ernie Kovacs. And another guy I used to rub elbows with, a guy by the name of Richard Meltzer, who wrote The Aesthetics of Rock. Great show, and thanks again for name-checking Lester. I always enjoyed my time with him, and I consider myself uh, just fortunate to have been a buddy of his. Uh, a work buddy, nonetheless, but a buddy of his. Anyways, all right, guys, thanks much. Hi, this is Blake from Louisville, Kentucky. Just wanted to say, in response to your rock critics, I think Patty Smith is one that a lot of people don't give enough credit to, especially people who might just recognize her from her music and not from her writing, especially those early 70s creams. Uh, you want to talk about Lester Bangs? Well, Patti Smith, actually, incredible, incredible writer. In fact, I'd venture to say that her use just of, of vernacular and, and common speech and just the way that she used slang is incredible. And, you know, as a writer of songs and singer, of course, she's amazing, but as a rock critic, she's also amazing. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the show. Bye. Hi, this is Roscoe from Bloomington, Indiana. Just finished listening to your Christmas mix, and an obscure uh, LP came out in 1968, I believe was the year. The group Rotary Connection, and the LP 
entitled Peace. And uh, it's really full of great Christmas songs. And I think everyone should check it out if they can. Again, Rotary Connection. Peace. Happy holidays. Snowflakes are falling softly to the ground. Everyone is happy. There's joy all around. Children are all happy because Christmas time is here. Hey, this is David from Silverton, Colorado. Uh, Christmas means a totally different thing to different people. Uh, a friend of mine from Australia says Christmas to him is always going to the beach for a picnic. Friends of mine in Kenya have a totally different definition of Christmas. For me, having grown up and moved back to the San Juan Mountains of southwestern Colorado, Christmas has always been snow and lots of it. My favorite Christmas song is uh, one by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. It's called Colorado Christmas. But all along the Rockies, you can feel it in the air. Until you ride to Boulder down below. The closest thing to heaven on this planet anywhere is a quiet Christmas morning in the Colorado snow. And every year when I hear that song, it brings a little bit of a tear to my eye. The song defines Christmas for me. Thanks a lot, guys. Keep up the good work. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.